So I have to ask you a question. Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news first? Right? So, okay. So, so I, I absolutely hate that question. <laughs> All right? Because it just causes immediate anxiety in me. Did, I mean, I don't even know. I didn't even let it hang there long enough for it to cause anxiety for you. Right? Do you want the good news or do you want the bad news first? I, I, I hate that. All right? Now, some of us would say, well, I want the good news first. Right? I want the good news because I want to be riding that high for when you share with me the bad news. And how many of you always want the good news first? Okay, one person. Cool. Cool. That's great. That's great. I like that. I appreciate that. All right? Those of us who want the bad news first, I want to get that out of the way so maybe the good news will override, right? And you kind of want to end on the good news. But I hate the question. Even just asking it to you right now, I felt this like, I, I, I did, I felt like a little nervous. I'm starting to sweat, all right? I don't know if you've ever had, if you have kids, if you've ever had one of them come up to you and say, so I need to tell you something. But the good news is it wasn't my fault. That's the bad news first, all right? No matter what comes next, all right? It causes anxiety, and I think we say, okay, good news, bad news. It's like we walk through every day, kind of moment by moment, either chasing after one or avoiding and dreading the other. Like, there's going to be, like, a, a total of, like, 26 people by the end of tonight who are either going to receive really good news or really bad news about how, the game, how a game went. And the rest of you are just going to enjoy really good food tonight, all right? <laughs> but we do. I mean, this good news, bad news thing, it's kind of a thing. Now, now for weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' life as it's told in the Gospels and the Gospel narratives of his life in the New Testament of the Bible, and we've been looking at very specifically, well, what does the word gospel really mean? And, and how is it good news for everyone? So we have a definition that we've discovered in Scripture of what the gospel really means, and this is it. It's the good news that saves us, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave so that we can have full life in him. And that is good news. We've also been talking about, and, and Chris mentioned it just a moment ago, that Jesus is king. And through some of the interactions as we've been walking through these stories, these narratives of his life, we've seen that Jesus, it, it, he's sovereign. He's king over nature, right? He's king over the physical world. We've seen, we've seen these interactions where we see that Jesus is king over life and death. He rules. He's sovereign. We've seen that he's king over loneliness, over fear. He's king even over doubt. He's king over our lives. But not everyone thinks that all of that is really all that good of news. And I think it may surprise you to learn that there's more of us than you might think that struggle with whether or not all of that is really good news. But here's where we're going to land today, and I'm going to say it a few times for you, that only Jesus can transform hearts. Only Jesus can transform hearts. We're going to jump into a narrative here in Mark chapter 7, and I will warn you um, with a beautiful warning that we're going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage, okay? Um, 
We're going to read this in, in Mark chapter 7. Turn with me if you have a Bible. If you have a Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to get that out. Because when I get really boring, you'll be able to just kind of start reading ahead and stuff and <laughs> occupy your time. Um, but if you don't have a Bible, we have them at the hub for you, and they're free, so we just want you to just go grab one, okay, when we leave here today. But turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to just kick it off in verse 1. This is what it says. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Skipping down to verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowds to him and said, listen to me, everyone and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he had left the, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but just into their stomach and then out of the body. Now, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, there's a lot there. And that's hard to hear. Jewish religious leaders are approaching Jesus, and they're bothered by something. Did you catch that? It was really the whole point of the entire text, okay? Jesus' disciples aren't practicing traditions of the Jewish faith, okay? They're skipping over that part. But Jesus raises the conversation to be about something a little bit more than that. Jesus wants to talk about sin. And so he dives headlong into addressing the issue of sin. Now, this is a topic that we're going to talk about today that I find people often live in a couple of different camps, all right? And one camp is when, it talk, when we're talking about sin, is there's a group of people that say, you know what, we really just don't talk about that enough. We need to talk about sin a lot more. And, and sometimes I wonder where that comes from. And, you know, I wonder if that comes from a place that says, you know, I, we need to talk more about sin around here. Christians should be talking more about sin because I constantly need the self-introspection about how my own heart is doing. Or 
Does it come from a place where like, we need to talk more about sin, but really, actually, you just need to hear more about it? Or the other camp is kind of like, you know what? Uh, I, I wish we didn't really talk about sin so much. And I wonder, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it comes from a place like, it actually just doesn't make me feel very good. Or maybe people, you know, guests coming into church, kind of checking things out for the first time, you know, we don't want to offend them. Sin's a tricky topic, but we have to address it. Because how do, we have to understand how sin fits into this good news that we've been talking about. All right, And so we're going to try to attempt to unpack just portions of that today. Now, what's the definition of sin for you? Okay, It's really quite simple. It's anything that separates you from God. Anything, and it really, so anything could actually be sin if it's separating you from God. And this is going to be tricky today because I want to tell you a couple things about sin here. First one's this, is that sin loves to downplay itself. Sin loves to downplay itself. Now, understand something here. There were two sets of rules that the Old Testament Jewish people followed, that the Jewish faith followed, two sets. One was the written law, and that was the law. Those were the rules given by God to Moses. Remember the Ten Commandments, all right? When, jo when Moses was up on the mountain, God gave Moses a set of laws, all right? And that was the written, um, also known as the Mosaic Law, there was another set of laws that the Jews called the oral laws. They were the traditions that were developed over time that added to, but those were also considered to be from God because they were passed down for generations and for centuries, all right? The Mosaic, the written laws, this is the laws that came from God. Are you understanding? Are we, there's two sets, right? Written laws that came from God, the oral laws that were traditions that were kind of introduced by human teachers. We cool? We understand that? Okay. So some of the Mosaic laws would have gone like this. If you touched a dead animal or a dead body, came in contact in any way, you were ritually unclean. If you had an infectious disease, you were ceremonially defiled. If you came into contact with mildew, all right, right, you were unclean. You were impure. If you ate meat from an animal that was considered to be unclean, guess what? You're unclean. You're defiled. And there were, uh, there were several laws like that. You were considered ritually impure, defiled, and unclean. If any of these things happened, if you came in contact with any of these things, all right? You couldn't enter the temple. You couldn't worship God. You couldn't be in a community of people who were worshiping God. You might not even be able to enter into any community of people at all, even in the marketplace. Unclean. And we say, that's really absurd. Totally agree with you. It's absurd. But understand something. These laws were given as an aid for God's people, to guide them toward a place of spiritual humility. The, these laws were a visual aid. They stood for something. They stood as a reminder to the people, the people of Israel, that they were spiritually and morally impure. 
that they couldn't really have access to God unless there was some spiritual purification that took place. They were visual aids to remind them of their position before a holy, beautiful God. Now, the oral laws that were introduced over time, these, these codes and these traditions that were introduced over time, they were called offense laws. Fence, you know, like a, in a field, offense, all right? They were called fence laws. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law built this fence. Here's the written law from God. They built this perimeter fence around it of other rules and traditions and laws in order to protect people from breaking the other laws, all right? This is like um, when you're driving in the car on vacation and I had to turn around and tell my boys, don't you dare touch each other again, all right? That's the written law. It came straight from God, I promise, all right? But then you as a parent build a fence wall around that. And not only don't you touch him, don't even look at him, <laughs> right? Because what you're trying to do is to protect them from breaking the don't touch law, don't even look at him. You build a fence around it, right? That, and that's what the Pharisees did. Okay, they were rules added to the law to help keep the people into the finest minutia, the finest detail of cleanliness and holiness and purity so that you don't even come close. Right? In fact, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 extra laws. Get this. There were 248 of them that were positive. And that left 365 that were negative. And I wonder where you and I get our feelings about the good news and bad news, especially when it comes to faith. You see, Jesus charged the Pharisees in this passage we, ju we just read with something really, really interesting. He charged them with disobeying God's law by being so focused on the exaggerated details of their own tradition. They actually were breaking the law they were attempting to keep. The root problem of those fence rules, Jesus says, here's the root problem is they actually make God's rules feel uh, doable. Not only did the fence laws heap onto the people of Israel like hundreds more of do this and, and hundreds more of, of don't do that, but what they actually did was by adding to the law, they actually led the people to believe that that spiritual purification that we talked about was attainable, that by, by doing something and not doing some other things, they could actually obey God's law. They could make it. They could manage it. I think many of us are aware of the sin in our lives. But the root problem isn't that we often feel hopelessly lost in our sin. That's not the root problem for most of us. The biggest problem with sin in your life and in mine, is that we think we can manage it. We got it. It's doable. And we think, well, you know, <laughs> come on. Defiled spiritually, that sounds so ominous. You're not defiled spiritually. I just lie to my boss once in a while. I just lie to my parents. 
sometimes. I, maybe I've not been the husband or, or, or the wife that I should be, but ritually impure? Come on. Yeah, maybe I put career and money and status at the forefront. And maybe I played around sexually and, 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 and my search history would reveal something that maybe I wouldn't want you to know about. But yeah, I've withheld generosity. I've withheld forgiveness. But you know what we call those things? Those are mistakes. Those are flaws. It's, and, and, and honestly, I, and I know some of the things you're not proud of. And we, and we know that there's a good that I should be doing more and, and, and a bad that I should be avoiding. But for the most part, you think you can manage it. But come on, the deep, dark stains that defile me must be serious. And in this interaction that Jesus has, he starts to knock down some fences, and that's why it's so uncomfortable. He starts to knock down some fences, and, and he raises his audience's view of the law to the proper place. What he's doing is he's, he's raising their view of the law from a low view to a high view. So a low view of the law for the, for the Jewish people would have been like, you know what, through, through ritual, through practice, through rules, we can manage the law. We can actually obey God's law. That's a low view of the law. The high view of the law that Jesus is trying to raise their eyes to, right, is that, that they actually can't earn favor with God by obeying the, the law. They can't try harder. They can't do enough in order to appease God. And so in doing that, Jesus is talking to you about sin, and you saw him get into that. He raises our view of sin from a low view of sin where we say, well, it's mistakes. It's a flaw. I made an oops. And you know what? By, just, by being good enough and trying to obey more rules and trying to get back to church more, I'll be okay. And Jesus says, I want you to raise your eyes off of a low view of sin to a high view of sin. It offends a beautiful, holy, loving God and as Jesus states very clearly when he's explaining the parable to his disciples that he called dull, it's like, oh, that stings a little bit, all right? Jesus says, the core of your heart is hopelessly defiled. The core of your heart inside here is hopelessly impure and unclean. And that's a high view of sin. It feels hopeless. It's because it is. And many of us want to enjoy this good news. But the problem for you and for me is that we often don't have anything to compare it to. How can you know when you hear good news when many of us can't even admit what the bad news looks like in our hearts? The good news of the gospel is only good news, church, if you can admit the true status of your heart. And only Jesus transforms hearts. 
Here's the second thing. Sin loves to overplay its hand. So, we, so sin loves to downplay itself. Yeah, you got this. But sin also loves to overplay its hand a little bit. Tim Keller says in his book, Jesus the King, listen to this. He says, to be human is to feel and know that we are inconsequential, always striving for the thing that will fix us outside and hope that it sinks inward and cleans and fixes and satisfies the places inside of us. Our human longings have proven our feelings of unworthiness, that every person in here feels unworthy. It's why we try to make up for it with success. It's why that we, we're obsessed with being successful people. It's why we push our kids hard. It's why, it's why education and, and, and career and money have, are such powerful motivators to us. It's why feeling loved and being sexual is all an attempt to feel accepted, to feel valuable to someone. And we've all felt that. It's the perfecting of our bodies and our image, the things that people see. Because we're clawing, you know, you know what I mean, and clamoring for someone to say, you're good. It's being just a hair better than the other guy. It's being religious. It's being Christian enough. See, we all have this nagging feeling, and you don't even have to be a Christian. You just have to be a man or a woman to know that we all have this, this nagging feeling that we're not clean enough to enter into the presence of God. And Keller keeps going on. He says, you know, we, we each have this profound, inescapable sense that if we were truly examined, if someone could look at every moment of our lives, who really into our hearts, that we'd be rejected. We'd be found out. We have a deep sense that we need to hide our true selves, don't we? Hide our true selves and only let people see what we want them to see. Secretly, you know that's true. We feel that we're unacceptable. And that we have to prove to ourselves and to other people by any way possible that you're valuable, that you're loved, and that you're worthy. See, we have an imposter that lives inside of us. It kind of looks like us, and it kind of sounds like us, but it's not us. We, we all have an imposter, and sometimes that imposter enters in at a young age with a wound from a parent, usually a parent, sometimes a friend. And it wounds us, and it stays with us. And those wounds that come over time through things that people have said or done to us or mistakes that we've made, and that imposter kind of looks like you, kind of sounds like you, but it's not you. That voice gets loud. And it says, keep trying. Keep trying. You're not there yet. You'll never measure up. You're not strong enough. You don't have what it takes. You can try to fix what's on the inside, but you know that on the inside you're trash. And you hear 
that voice enough, that imposter? You hear it enough. You give into it enough. And before you know it, it starts defining you. And you start living out of that lie that the enemy's been telling you, maybe since you were 13 years old. And I have good news for you today. That Jesus wants to transform your heart. He's the only one that can. And here's the third thing I know about sin. Is that Jesus is the only solution to sin. You know, Jesus in John chapter, chapter 8 verse 36, he says, If the Son sets you free, then you're really free. Like you're really, really free. So Jesus went to the cross to provide a way that, that makes that imposter's voice just rendered powerless. He went to the cross so that that voice that nags inside of your head and your heart is rendered powerless. And he wants to tell you who you really are, something that you've struggled to believe for all of your childhood and your adult life. You are a son and you are a daughter of God. Fully loved and fully forgiven. And I love the way that it says it in 1 John chapter uh, 3. And this is out of the message version of the Bible. Listen to this. What marvelous love the Father has extended, extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's not, all, that's not what the world does. That's why the world doesn't recognize us or, or take us seriously, because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him. And in seeing him, we'll become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming, stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. Church, I'm telling you, you, you and I have an enemy. We have an enemy that tells us that our sin really isn't that big of a deal or that you are hopelessly impure. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and his first words in the gospel of Mark that we see, do you know what they are the first time we hear Jesus' voice? He says, repent and believe the good news. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn towards God. That's what it means. Turn away from sin and toward who you really are. Repent. Not because he's mad or disappointed at you. Listen to me. Please listen to me. We do not repent because God's mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not. Your sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It cannot be held against you any longer. Do you understand that? It's done. It's finished. You repent because you and I have to admit that we have given ear to the liar, to an imposter, and we believed it, and we begin to live out of the lie. That's why we repent. And the gospel-led Christian repents 
Not necessarily because every desire or every longing you've had has always been bad. It's just you repent because you've put your trust in those things for your purification. Repent. Because only Jesus can transform your heart. And he's the only cure for what you've got. There is no bad news in this good news. You don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear that. And now that you know it, let me add this one piece to it here. Who is that one person in your life that needs to hear what I just told you? And when are you going to tell them? We're going to go into a time here um, that's just going to be a little weird. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Um, it's going to be a time of, just, of, of, a, of a quiet repentance and prayer. And I'm going to ask you to humor me here just now because we're just going to take like, like a minute just to be really quiet and still before God. Okay? And I'm going to ask you to do something with me and humor me here. If you would just close your eyes. Would you just close your eyes? Just right where you are. Just close your eyes. I'm not coming out of my seat. My, or, or out of here. Don't worry about it. All right? All right? Just, just close your eyes. I want you to do something for me. I want you to picture God sitting about three feet right in front of you, looking right back at you. Can you picture that? I, you can picture however you want. Maybe his hands just outstretched on your shoulder. Maybe you've got your hands maybe turned up in your lap, and, and he's, he's just gently but firmly kind of gripping one of them. Maybe he's like, you know, like a bunch of guys sitting around a campfire. Maybe he's just right next to you, and he's just got his arm around your shoulder. You know what I mean? And you, you can kind of just see the, the glow of the fire on the, uh, uh, on the one side of his face. He's not mad, and he's not disappointed in you at all. In fact, when, when you just sit there with just looking back at God, looking at you, 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 you just see actually just kind of a little smirk, a little smile cracked on his face. What I want to ask you to do, and, and, just, and just try it, you know, is just repent before him now. Just tell him. Just tell him. Say, I've downplayed sin, Jesus. Tell him, tell him that you've, you've listened to that voice of that liar inside of you for so long that you began to believe that it was true. Tell him. Tell him that you've believed the enemy's lies, that you're not lovable, or that by following the rules, you thought that you could be good. Tell him. Maybe repent for the very first time. Tell him that you want to be baptized, that you just want to put your faith in him, and you just want him to be your king. Okay, tell him. But right now, for just like 30 seconds, we're going to sit in just utter silence. 
And I want to challenge you just to look at him as he looks at you. I have good news for you today. That liar may continue to speak, but Jesus has spoken. Amen.